This sermon was recorded at Highway Mountain View in Mountain View, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Highway Community. It's great to have you. So great. Uh, Glad that you've joined us uh, as we gather together. What a privilege it is for us, I think. We're reminded of that every Sunday. Uh, thanks to our worship team, what a privilege that it is for us to gather together as God's people and sing, to join our voices together um, in the unity uh, around the great truths of, uh, of our Lord and Savior. So thanks for coming today. We're glad that you're with us this morning. After a one-week hiatus, uh, we are back to our teaching series through Paul's letter to the Galatians entitled Set Free to Live Free, uh, where we're exploring what it means to live according to the freedom that comes from the transforming presence of God's Spirit in our lives. And Paul, remember, is writing to the churches that he had established in the Roman province of Galatia on his first missionary journey. And he's writing because these churches that he had established had fallen into crisis. Apparently, there were some Jewish Christians who had come to Galatia, to these churches, after Paul had left the region, who were questioning both Paul's authority as an apostle, as well as his message. And these teachers were teaching that the Galatians' faith in Jesus needed to be supplemented by obeying the Jewish law, and particularly the aspects of the law that marked off or distinguished Jews from Gentiles. Things like circumcisions and and the various laws surrounding what things were permissible and weren't permissible to eat. And so these teachers were were telling the Galatians that in addition to believing in Jesus, they also needed to observe the law in order to truly be a part of God's covenant people. And as we've seen so far in our series from the tone of Paul's letter, this infuriated Paul. And that's because what these Jewish Christian teachers saw as supplementing the gospel, Paul saw as supplanting it. What these teachers saw as supplementing the gospel, Paul saw as supplanting it. And so Paul is writing to clarify and to reassert the true, pure, unadulterated gospel message. If you have your Bible with you this morning and you'd like to join me, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2. You'll find Galatians near the end of your Bible. Uh, It's in the New Testament. It's the ninth New Testament book. You'll find it right between 2 Corinthians and Ephesians. And uh, when we get to it, the text will also be on the screens, and you're welcome to follow along there too. Galatians chapter 2. Just to catch us back up, Uh, into the context of where we are here as we pick up the action in Galatians 2. After establishing that the gospel that he had preached was a direct revelation from Jesus, that it was God's message and not something that Paul had received from or was taught by any person, last time we saw Paul telling the Galatians about his trip to Jerusalem, where he presented this gospel that he was preaching among the Gentiles to James Peter and John, who were the pillars of the Jerusalem church. And Paul said that when he presented the gospel that he was preaching to them, they added nothing to his message. And so Paul had the approval of the church in Jerusalem for the ministry that he was doing out in the faraway regions. And it was also decided during these meetings that he and Barnabas were going to take the lead in preaching the good news to the Gentiles and that James, Peter, and John would concentrate on preaching the gospel 
among the Jews. And so that was the agreement from this meeting that they had in Jerusalem. But when Peter visited the city of Antioch in Syria, which was essentially the, the home base for Paul's early missionary work among the Gentiles, when Peter visited Antioch in Syria, a major rift surfaced between him and Paul. Now, initially, when Peter arrived, everything was great. Uh, Peter came, and Paul says that he was in the habit regularly of sharing meals with the Gentiles. And so Peter came to Antioch. He was sharing meals, uh, enjoying the bacon-wrapped hot dogs, the shrimp scampi, whatever else it was that they were serving, free from the restrictions of the law. But then Paul says that certain Jewish Christians arrived who believed that all followers of Jesus also needed to follow the Jewish law and assume the identity markers that made the Jews distinct. And when these people came, Paul says, Peter, because he was afraid of them, drew back. And he began to separate himself from the Gentiles. Now, in the ancient world, sharing a meal with someone represented something far more significant than it does in our present-day cultural context. Sharing a meal with someone in the ancient world communicated acceptance at the deepest level. That sharing a meal communicated acceptance. And so for Peter to change course, to reverse course, to withdraw himself from these meals communicated the opposite. It communicated separation. It communicated division. It communicated a, a fundamental difference in, in status within this newly formed community of believers that comprised, was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And for Paul, that was totally unacceptable. And it was totally unacceptable because it went against the very fabric of the gospel itself. And so Paul confronted Peter. And he tells this story here in Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. He says, When I saw that they, Peter and these other Jewish Christians, were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, in front of them all, You were a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now we see there that at the very core of Paul's anger with Peter was the fact that he and the others were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Their actions were not aligned with the truth of the gospel that they believed. And in the verses that follow, uh, which detail the rest of Paul's confrontation with Peter, Paul explains why. Take a look with me at verse 15 of Galatians 2. We, who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. 
I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now those verses, uh, which, are, which are super dense, right, incredibly thick, uh, comprise one of the most important passages in all of Paul's letters for understanding what's at the very core of the gospel that Paul preached and about which he was so incredibly passionate. And most commentators agree that these verses also comprise the central thesis and the theological center of Galatians as well. And we see here that Paul's confrontation with Peter begins with what they both know and have accepted. He begins with what he and Peter both know and have accepted. Look with me again at verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And we can't help but notice as we read and listen to those verses, the repetition that's there. Right? Paul clearly doesn't want Peter, doesn't want the Galatians, doesn't want us to miss the fact that a person is justified not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul's central concern here, we see as he begins this confrontation, has to do with how a person is justified. His central concern has to do with how a person is justified. A justification is a metaphor for God's acceptance of us that is drawn from the legal world. Uh, it's the opposite of condemnation, and it's associated with the image of God as a judge rendering a not guilty verdict to the guilty. It's associated with the image of God as a judge rendering a not guilty verdict to the guilty. And broadly speaking, uh, the metaphor, which Paul more fully develops in Romans chapter 5, works like this. God, who is holy and just, forgives humankind who are guilty of disobeying his law and commandments through the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross. And so Jesus' death, legally speaking, assumes the guilt of all of humanity. Now, in addition to that, there is a relational component to justification as well. There's a relational component in addition to this judicial dimension. In Romans chapter 5, Paul connects justification with reconciliation. Jesus' death on the cross not only renders us not guilty, but it also reconciles us to God. It, it restores us to relationship. It restores the covenant that was broken by sin. And so this central concern of Paul's here, justification, has to do with God's acceptance of us, both in a legal sense and in a relational sense. Through Jesus' death on the cross, we are deemed not guilty, and we're restored to right covenantal relations with God. 
And Paul declares here in Galatians 2 that justification, God's acceptance of us, does not come from works of the law. It comes through faith in Jesus. Right? So justification does not come from works of the law. In the context of Galatians, as we've seen, when Paul says that justification does not come through the works of the law, he's referring to the law of Moses. And again, particularly those ritual laws having to do with boundary markers. Right? So circumcision, passing on the bacon-wrapped hot dogs, observing the Jewish calendar, all the things that the Jews did to set themselves apart, those, Paul says, are not what makes a person acceptable to God. Instead, justification comes only by God's grace. It has nothing to do with human effort, nothing to do with status. There's nothing that we do that makes us acceptable to God. We're accepted only by grace through Jesus. And Paul is adamant about that. So adamant about it, in fact, that he repeats it three times here in the space of verse 16. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. And so Paul is is essentially trying to, to jog Peter's memory here in this confrontation. He's trying to hit him in the head with a two-by-four, trying to get him to remember that this is what they had concluded when they converted to Christianity. That the justification doesn't come from the law. It comes through faith in Jesus. It comes through faith. Now, while we often think about faith as belief in something, the Greek word that Paul uses here, is, is more than that. It means more than that. It also carries the idea of reliability, the idea of promise, the idea of pledge, of proof, of trust, and of confidence. And the verb form of the word can mean to trust, to give credence to, to have confidence. And so we see from all of the different dimensions of this word faith that the faith that Paul is talking about here is more than just mental assent. The faith that he's talking about is more than just a decision. It means to rely on something believed to be reliable. It means to rely on something believed to be reliable. And so inherent in faith, we see, is a commitment and trust. A commitment and trust that binds two things together. And that reveals, very importantly, that there is also a relational component to faith. There's a covenant component to it. And so faith in Jesus isn't just believing in him. It's joining with him. Joining with him. Living in a way that we rely on him. And we see all that reinforced, actually, by a unique grammatical structure that Paul uses here in the middle of verse 16. It's right in the middle of the verse at the beginning of that second sentence. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus. We, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus. Now, while we don't see anything super exciting or unusual there in the English translation, there's something that's happening in the original language that's significant. And it's something, interestingly enough, that we talked about in our last teaching series in John's Gospel because it's one of John's favorite expressions. It's just the matter of a little preposition. Right? Literally, 
The grammar of that phrase in verse 16 reads, so we too have put our faith into Christ Jesus. Or, so we too have believed into Christ Jesus. And that little preposition, right, that grammatical nuance is significant because it highlights that faith is directional. It highlights that faith is directional. Faith involves moving toward something. We're believing into the person of Jesus Christ. It's about moving, faith is about moving toward Jesus, engaging in relationship with him in a continual, ongoing way. So faith isn't just a decision that we make once. It's the continual response of trust in and obedience to Jesus. And so there's this sense that through faith, right, we, we join with God in a way that affects the entire reality of our lives. We join with God in a way that affects the entire reality of our lives. And Paul actually underscores that for us with the imagery that he uses in verses 19 and 20. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we see that Paul here describes faith in Jesus in terms of death and life. He describes faith in Jesus in terms of death and life. Not only have he and Peter, through their faith, died to the law so that they might live for God, but Paul also says that through faith, he has participated in Jesus' crucifixion as well. Look again at verse 20 there. I have been crucified with Christ. Literally, I have been crucified together with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Right? And so Paul's old life and his old self are gone. Right? He's died to that. But Christ lives in me, he says. And so faith in Jesus is a death experience that brings life. It marks the end of something old and the beginning of something new. And look at the second half of verse 20. The life I now live in the body, there's the new thing, right? New reality. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And note that last phrase, who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice the language of gift there again, which we saw Paul use back at the very beginning of chapter 1. I live by faith in God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so Paul was transformed. He was transformed by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And that grace that he experienced, we see, is now the defining factor of the new life that he lives. He lives by faith according to God's grace. Grace is, is his guiding principle, right? which is why Paul says there at the beginning of verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And so Paul is unable to set aside God's grace. It's at the core of the new life that he now lives. 
and it's what should be the core at the life of everyone who follows Jesus. And that is why Paul is so upset with Peter. Right? Peter knew the gospel. He too had experienced God's grace. But he wasn't living in a way that reflected that. Right? He, he wasn't extending that grace that he had received to others. Instead, Peter was setting it aside. And in doing so, he was creating separation and division. And of course, the reason why Paul is recounting this whole story here in the context of the letter is because the Galatians were doing exactly the same thing. They were doing exactly the same thing. Now, Paul importantly reminds us here in Galatians chapter 3, through all of this very thick theology, he reminds us of something that's very simple. And that is that to live for God, to live this new life, is to live transformed by his grace. To live for God is to live transformed by his grace. Paul reminds us that living by faith is about continually moving toward the selfless, sacrificial love of Christ and extending that grace that we have received ourselves to others. And the reason that that is so important to Paul is because when that happens, the effect is transformational. When we live transformed by God's grace, the effect is transformational. And we're going to look at a, at a story that I think gives us a, a picture of what all of this looks like, a very concrete picture of what all of this looks like in real life, and shows us just how simple and also how transformational extending the grace that we ourselves have received to others can be. Take a look at the story from This American Life. Welcome to Videos for You. I find people who are having trouble saying something, and I help them get their message across in a video. This is Maggie, and these are the outfits she wears in front of her parents. My parents haven't seen me wear shorts in probably 10 years. That's because her body is covered in tattoos, and her parents have no idea. Maggie's parents are conservative Christians, and they really hate tattoos. My parents think people who get tattoos are people with motorcycles, probably dabble in drugs, and, and just are probably kind of low life. This video is for her parents, Linda and Randy, to tell them that she has tattoos, 17 of them, that she's been hiding for 12 years. We know where to begin, so we had this idea to call a minister. Maybe he could help. This is Max, a pastor of a church in Connecticut. Linda and Randy, Maggie thought if you saw a minister be okay with her tattoos, it might help you be okay with them too. The first few tattoos that I got were really Christian. I right. have a cross. I have a dove that represents the Holy Spirit. That's like straight off of a stole. Right. That's like you practically could teach Sunday school with that tattoo. Exactly. Maggie's tattoos all have stories. They say so much about where she's coming from and who she loves. My side is a big anchor that says mom and dad. Oh, wow. <laughs> that tattoo is 
wishful thinking. It's like this secret conversation I'm having with myself about my frustration for feeling really distant from my parents. Tell me a little bit more about faith when you were younger. Oh gosh, I remember when I was little, I remember saying, God wants me to be happy. And my parents said, no, he wants you to obey him. He doesn't care if you're happy. To me, God is so much more than that. There's also grace. I think that is is something that gets forgotten a lot in my family. Grace, in my understanding, is mostly forgiveness Mm -hmm. and the ability to screw up and in the eyes of God, be just as good as you were before. I guess the question is, are you asking for their forgiveness? The only thing I want from my parents making this is the ability to be honest with them. Gosh, I can't give up. Mm -hmm. I still want to have this really intimate relationship with them. All you can do is invite them to know who you are now. I hope they have the good sense to accept a very lovely invitation. Okay, so that was a video we made for her to show her parents. We didn't know how they would react, so we recorded a song for every possibility. So we flew her out there to show it to her parents, and she didn't show them the video. She said she got too freaked out. So we flew her out again. Her parents didn't want to be in the video, so we talked to her about it. I was so sure that they were going to react one, day, one way, and they reacted totally differently. The moment they saw the tattoos, I realized that I had been making all these assumptions about them. Maggie had been totally wrong about her parents. Turns out they have no problem with tattoos. And beyond that, they weren't the kinds of Christians she thought they were. Her dad even said he doesn't think of himself as conservative at all. The conversation we had, you know, after we watched the video about who they define themselves as, as Christians, what they think religion is, um, was one of the best conversations we've ever had. Just as I think it's very easy for a lot of people to assume the worst in their parents and see them as these curmudgeon-y old people, but they're not. Yeah, they've shown me a ton of grace, and that was something I, I accused them in the video of not having any grace, which is exactly what they have shown me. Great story, isn't it? Yay for not curmudgeon parents. Now, I love that story, though, because I think it's a really interesting modern-day example of exactly the kinds of things that Paul is talking about in Galatians on a whole variety of levels. And Maggie has these identity markers, these external identity markers, 17 of them, in fact. Right? And because of some assumptions that she has made about her parents, and assumptions about who they are as conservative Christians, and what, because of that, she thinks that they think about tattoos, right? there, was, there was a gap that had formed in their relationship. And although Maggie longed for her relationship with her parents to be restored, she really hadn't given her parents a chance 
uh, precisely because of all of the assumptions that she had made about them. But when she does give them a chance, after the second trip, she's completely surprised. Right? Maggie is surprised, and she is surprised by grace. Right? And we see there, through the storytelling, how beautiful of a thing that is. That the way that the grace that her parents extend to her, which comes right from what they've received from God through Jesus themselves, has a huge effect. It's, it's, it's surprising and it's also transforming on so many levels. Right? It transforms their relationship. It transforms Maggie's understanding of her parents. It transforms her understanding of faith and of God and of religion. Right? That simple extension and expression of grace was so powerful. Right? And that's a great picture for us, I think, of what Paul is talking about here when he talks about living a life that's transformed and living a new life for God. It's a great picture of what it means to be transformed by God's grace in a way that transforms the way that we live. And that's ultimately right, about living in a way that reflects the grace that God has shown to us through Jesus. And it comes out in these very simple ways in which we mirror the grace that we have experienced to others. That's what it means to live for God. Scott McKnight in his commentary for Galatians, puts it like this. Those who have been justified live justly. Those who have been made holy in Christ live holy lives. Those who have experienced God's love love others. Those who have experienced God's forgiveness forgive others. Those who have died to the flesh live in the spirit. Nick and the band are going to come and we're going to close this morning with communion. Uh, these elements that are on the table here in front of me at the center of the stage, the bread, which represents Jesus' body, which was broken for us, and the cup, which represents Jesus' blood that was shed for us. These elements are a way for us to remember the sacrifice of grace that God made on our behalf through his son Jesus. Right? That sacrifice that he made through which we're justified and deemed not guilty and, more importantly, restored to relationship with him. And so these elements remind us of that and partaking in them reminds us that we too, like Paul, have participated in Jesus' death as well through our faith. We are co-participants in Jesus' death through our faith. And they remind us as we take them of that and of the new life that we experience as well, a life that is transformed by God's grace. And so as the band plays for us, whenever you are ready, you're welcome to come to the table. Come from the sides and get the elements and then return to your seat through the center aisle. And then you can partake of the elements whenever you're ready. But may we do this this morning in remembrance of the transforming grace of Jesus.